This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 14th, 2022, and this is episode 285. I'm Scott Lundboom. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a by-election we didn't even talk about last week, but it is off. We're ch- going to check in on it, tee it up, see who's running, see if it's going to be interesting at all. Probably not. And then we check back in on the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race and see what the candidates are doing there. Thank you to all the patrons who continue to support this show. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Please make sure to tell your friends about the show, tweet about us, post about it on Facebook, put it on a sticker and put it on the back of a stop sign in your local community, whatever it takes to get the word out. Let's jump into it. Rumble in South Vancouver, the 2022 Vancouver Kilchenna by-election to replace Andrew Wilkinson is off. It was announced on April 2nd. We didn't talk about it last week because we had a pretty jam-packed show. Candidate nominations are already actually closed. They closed on the 9th, so we know who's running. The election itself will be on April 30th, and if you're in the riding, advanced voting is between the 22nd and 27th. Scott, who's running? Obviously, top of the the list, and the reason the by-election is called is because Kevin Falcon wants a seat in the legislature, and he's the Liberal candidate needed one after he won the leadership race back in early February. I think we talked about Kevin Falcon a lot. There, there isn't really much to say beyond um, he's more Surrey based, I believe. Though I think Wick, works in Wiki tells me he lives in North Van. Okay, he's parachuting. Nevertheless, no, not someone with deep ties to the riding. Nevertheless, the presumptive favorite because it is a safe liberal riding. The Looking at past election results here, the, the real question is how far above 50% or will they track 50% or not of the vote, which the only time the, the vote has in fact been below 50% for the Liberals was in the 1991 election where they only managed to get 49.5% of the vote. Yeah, I think the NDP are hoping this could be like a Vancouver Point Grey type breakthrough where the Liberals held it from 96. It was actually Gordon Campbell's writing at almost 58% of the vote or at 49% of the vote initially and then over 50%. And they held it through. Christy Clark won it in a by-election in 2011. But by that point, the NDP had caught up at 45% with David Eby running and Christy Clark had 49. And then in the 2013 general election, it switched places and Christy Clark had to seek a different seat to be premier, which was a little embarrassing on her otherwise successful night. I think the writings are different, though. Point Grey does have a stronger renter community. It's got the university. And in the distant past, it had New Democratic representation. Yeah, it's definitely a little different. This is much more the kind of county dunbar part of the city which yeah is much more liberal in outlook and 
I, I have my doubts about Kevin Falcon's general electability in a province-wide vote, but this is the writing that elected Andrew Wilkinson several times. Like, clearly they're... <clears throat> The liberal brand is strong, even if the the individual candidates aren't necessarily uh, top tier. Also, the we don't like NDP candidates is pretty strong. They've never cracked 30% in the riding. In fact, in 2001, it was the year the NDP got wiped out. The Greens actually beat them. The Green candidate in 2001 in Kilchana was Judy Johnstone. She spent $360, got 14.4% of the vote and beat the NDP by a thousand votes. They have both sat around the same level. The NDP has been doing better there, but like you said, in the last election, they were at 29% to Wilkinson's 56%. And that was the 2020 election where the Liberals did badly everywhere, especially in Metro Van. So by-elections can get weird, but also in this province, they don't tend to favor the government with a couple exceptions. Usually it's a good excuse to vote for opposition for local members. Yeah, like pre- pretty much all the fundamentals are pointing in Kevin Falcon's direction. So it, it would take a, a minor miracle for the NDP to scoop this one away. And that just doesn't seem to be in the cards. Hoping to make that minor miracle in South Van happen is Jeanette Ash, the candidate for the NDP like Falcon, does not live in the riding. As far as I know, I believe she lives in uh, Yale Town with her partner, one Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver. Ash is quite accomplished of her own. She is the chair of political science at Douglas College. She's a visiting senior research fellow with King's College London and has a long CV as an academic in political science, as well as the usual kind of nonprofit or board involvement that tends to go with people who seek political office. I know the NDP is throwing some energy at it, but and Ash is a relatively prominent person to run, but yeah, still a super long shot. How about the Greens? Wendy Hayko is an emergency planning specialist, emergency management specialist, according to the Greens profile. I looked up her LinkedIn. She's done contract work with the Slotsin nation. She founded Action Ready, which is an emergency planning consultancy. She actually has a Bachelor of Science in Physics from York University. I think that's cool because I did a physics master's degree. Couldn't find too much else out about her. She's running for the green, so she's hoping to build off some of the work the party has been doing, expanding and trying to get a base on the mainland. Vancouver Kilchen is not going to be the place where they take a seat most likely maybe they're hoping to post a respectable result 15 20 percent of the vote if they're really lucky and get something with that the bc conservatives are back they have recruited local lawyer and one of the members of a group called safer vancouver and we can get back into that in a second dallas brody has also been a member of the shaughnessy heights property owners association and she's the daughter of oil executive Robert Gordon Brody. So Safer Vancouver is probably the most prominent role for Brody here. This is a group that is really trying to bring awareness to or challenge the prevalence of or the view of crime in the city. They've called for an audit of downtown Eastside service providers and have generally taken a more hardline stance that crime is out of control and things need to be cracked down on. 
And yeah, also as the Shaughnessy Heights Property Owners Association probably had those big red signs about being real angry at the school tats. Well, I know that was in Point Grey. I think they may have had that in Shaughnessy as well. I, I think Shaughnessy, if anything, had a greater percentage of them. Fair. And finally, rounding out the ballot, the fifth candidate is Sandra Philosoph Shipper from the Libertarian Party. Uh, Philosoph Shipper is the deputy leader of the BC Libertarians as of last year. She had run for the People's Party of Canada in Quadra. And like most People's Party candidates, if you go onto her Twitter or Facebook, there are a lot of things about COVID and restrictions on our freedoms. And I guess that's where the Libertarians have gone in the province, unsurprisingly. So if you. And also, she has not updated all of her social media to change the identifier from PPC to BC Libertarian. It's a nice mix. Like the description on her Twitter page talks about being a PPC candidate, but the banner shows the BC Libertarian logo. So dual loyalties. There's no People's Party of British Columbia. Although there was like the... There's a federal Libertarian Party. Are they affiliated? Who knows? I don't think so. They're Libertarians. Of course they're not. It... it <laughs> Yeah, libertarians are a bit like herding cats. I imagine they are not affiliated. So, there you have it. Voting on April 30th, we'll watch the results that evening. Probably not do anything until the following regularly scheduled podcast, unless there's a massive upset. I, I think it's unlikely the watching the results come in is going to be a nail-biter. Yeah, it's not going to be a live show to watch those results. Uh, one yeah, unless we want to make a big game of un over or under on... 50% for the, the liberal candidate. We'll do that via the Slack channel. So if you want to join them, patreon.com slash politicoast. The last thing that's almost interesting about this by-election is there have been a few amendments and changes to the BC elections law in recent years, mostly modernization things. And this is the first test of new election technology in BC. They will have electronic vote tabulators. So rather than having paper voting lists, they'll be able to do a smoother, faster counting of the votes. I think this is what Vancouver has for its municipal elections, the like Scantron sheets that you put through a scanner and it instantly counts the votes as opposed to manually having to count them. Yeah, Vancouver does use a, a scanning vote counter system. I guess the province finally caught up to it or they aligned their two, their election laws at the local and uh, provincial level on this. Just hopefully this rollout goes smoother than when New Brunswick tried it for the first time. And was it uh, Campobello Island that's only accessible through the states couldn't get uh, their machines broke down and they couldn't count the votes. And then it became a whole thing about you can't take election materials outside of the province during an election. And it became a whole thing of how to to get the votes counted there. Thank Luckily, probably not to be as big a problem here. I was going to say, you don't have to go through Point Roberts to get to all of Kilchana, at least as far as I know. It is a very contiguous constituency. That's probably enough said about that race. Let's move on to the Federal Conservative Party race, where we have some debates that will be happening. Yeah, so these were announced this week. So the first debate's going to be on May 11th, with another debate following on May 25th. We still don't know exactly how many candidates will be in those. Candidates have until the 19th to declare and will still have to get their entry fee and compliance deposits, I think, by the 19th. 
Do you know that offhand? Uh, they have to have all their endorsement signatures, registration fees, compliance deposits in for the 29th. So we should know by the time the debate rolls around who's officially in and who's not. Also note that the vote doesn't take place until September when on the 10th when the actual winner will be announced. So it's likely that there will be additional debates other than the two that were have been announced here. It does lead to a fairly long stretch between May and the actual vote. So we'll keep our eyes out for that. But yeah, we should at least have a better sense of the race um, that the two debates happening in May. The membership deadline is June 3rd. So candidates will be trying very hard over the next month in three quarters, few weeks, and especially in advance of, and I guess over those first two debates. That said, we're starting to get quite a few candidates in the race already officially confirmed in are the ones that get talked about the most, Jean Charest, Leslin Lewis, Pierre Polyev. Surprisingly, Patrick Brown is only in the approved, not verified list. I'm going off of what Wikipedia has right now. Also in the approved, these would be people who have declared and been greenlit, I assume, is Scott Aitchison. We'll come back to him in a second. Leona Alessalev, who we've talked about before, and Roman Babber, who is a like fringe ex PC MPP in Ontario. He got kicked out for being a little too pro COVID. And then also having declared our Grant Abraham, Joseph Borgalt, Mark Dalton, who we mentioned before, Joel Etienne, and Bobby Singh once more, who is one of the candidates from 2020 or one of the previous leadership races that everyone's just forgotten about. Yeah, I admit I completely blanked on. I think he might have briefly announced his intention, but decided to not pursue it. He definitely did not make it onto the uh, ballot last time. Let's come back to the main candidates and some of the policy announcements that have come out this week. Let's start with, I think, the biggest two. Pierre Polyev had the main feature. He didn't really much have a policy announcement so much as he had a viral video on Twitter where he was in Vancouver complaining about the cost of a specific house. This was a... Which really is the Vancouver thing to do when yeah. you uh, show up here to complain about the housing. Mean, this was a dilapidated looking rancher that was listed at $4.888 million, which fair enough, that's a lot of money. It was later pointed out this is a double lot, double wide lot. It has a laneway house and that's being rented out for $5,000. It has a laneway house and combined with the house, the two buildings are being rented out for 5000 a month. So it's it's a reasonable income stream if you can afford the down payment on it. That said, there are like the average house is still out of the reach of most people. And that is cause for anger, even if he chose like the most egregious example he could find. Yeah, the... the modal house rather than the the outlier is still pretty insane as far as this stuff goes so the bottom yeah, of the tier have... house in vancouver is still pretty <laughs> ridiculous yeah so <clears throat> I, we, we can nitpick the the exact details on that and i mean it's pierre polyev so everyone has already uh done that to death but yeah like he this got a lot of play because it, it absolutely struck a chord and yeah, it's something to definitely watch because 
notably besides the video leading off with some what can generously be called eccentric views on monetary policy the rest of the way the video talked about this was something that i think is or was done in a way that's going to connect with people and has a it's delivered in a way that feels like he actually understands and talking with people rather than two people if you, you get what i'm saying that about that it doesn't feel kind of lechery the yeah. way a lot of policy videos can be and in it he tries to identify a problem and it's a frustration you know it's a common one in the city of vancouver right it's vancouver council and are they doing enough are they putting too many barriers polyev cites a cd howe study that's rather controversial that says regulations add six hundred and forty thousand dollars per unit being built and we'll put a cbc piece in the show notes that has three people go maybe sometimes that's probably not the biggest issue and you could dig up the study and try and pick it apart but this feeling about city hall being an issue is something i cover regularly on canby report with matthew it's something we talk about in terms of housing issues on the other side of the ledger like i think i saw a francis beulah tweet thread where she points out like arguably vancouver has done far more than almost any other city in terms of trying to do something about housing it's just everywhere is so woefully inadequate that and the crisis is centered on the city of vancouver and it spills out from there that you need that next level of change to really make anything happen no one's mad yeah, like about I, them I, for some of the projects they've done but they've all just been hmm, too little yeah like, too late. I, I like francis's report and everything and uh, a lot of respect for work i do feel that tweet was a bit um dismissive of why uh poly ever went after vancouver because uh, you, you can talk about the fact that the city spends a, a fair bit of money on stuff but like it's clearly not working and you don't have to dig into the processes of the city too much to just see that something is pretty profoundly broken with it. And yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that uh, Polly Ever would pick Vancouver and use that as the exemplar of the problem. Well, and what's been noted here by many, including friend of the pod, Stuart Prest, is Polly Ever has really clearly articulated a problem and is speaking to it in a way that very few politicians are like housing especially for our generation people slightly younger uh, and people in precarious situations all across this country is facing is housing is such a deep crisis and is so unaffordable and unattainable in the major centers and like we talked about with the federal budget just last week it's like you can put record amounts of money into housing and it still be an order of magnitude less than is necessary. Now, the other half of the ledger here is Polyev hasn't put forward any actual solutions yet other than just articulate the problem better than most. He says, I believe that his housing plan is coming soon. We'll get into Scott Hson's housing plan in a second. But yeah, it is interesting to see him really tap in to that outrage. Yeah, and the it fits in with the, the gatekeeper's lot framing he's been using throughout the campaign there, and it does connect into it, the larger argument he's making in a way that potentially lets him snag this as a ballot question for him to frame and win on. 
it, it is, yeah, just also interesting that both Polyover and Scott Aitchinson have both taken a, a pretty kind of Yimby stance on housing. In Scott's case, explicitly the Yimby, it's in the, the headline of his announcement, but it, it is something we've talked about before, talking about the emergent par- cross-party consensus on the issue, and this is just another couple data points on that. Let's talk about like, the other Scott's plan, then, to get into some of the details of what that would look like. We don't have policy from Polyev, but Scott, and he goes by, he emphasizes Scott in his uh, piece. What's Scott going to do, Scott? Uh, so, under his plan, he would tie federal funding to uh, municipalities, proving more housing, changing their uh, policies around uh, density and permitting processes to basically require that, say, when uh, the government of Canada funds the SkyTrain line, that results in changes to the land use around it. So you don't get situations like around Nanaimo Station here in Vancouver, where it's low density, very unaffordable housing right around a multi-million dollar piece of transit infrastructure. So that's like the big stick that uh, a federal government can actually have on this because they can't control zoning on, well, anything but federal land. The other sticks he would use are to end immigration targets to try to get more skilled trades immigrating to Canada. And work with provinces to handle the skills certification and recognition of credentials, which is just generally something Canada should be better at. Invest more in affordable housing as well as enforce laws better around money laundering and other financial uh, crimes. So, like we've talked about in the past, there's not a lot of tools the federal government has. It's tying money. The immigration stuff is actually fairly interesting and novel. I don't know how large the skilled trade deficit is. It can't hurt to always try to improve it. The construction industry is hurting for workers, so it could definitely use some more. And Um, you know what? I'm, I'm glad to see a conservative promising a significant investment in affordable and social housing. Yeah, um, we don't have a dollar value attached to this, but this is pretty much what a the the outline of what a significant federal plan to actually make significant progress on housing would look like. Being a details person, so I'm really into the housing issue. I, I would of course uh, see an extra forty pages of details on this, but in terms of what it is there, it's pretty significant and something that I think pretty much anyone on the NB side would be happy with if the uh, federal government adopted. In his defense, being a long shot candidate with not a significant infrastructure behind him, I can't imagine he's got a very large team to do policy research analysis and drafting. So there's more here than you might expect. And if he becomes leader, he'll have the full office of the leader of the official opposition campaign budget to fund a more detailed plan for you. Uh, let's switch gears a little and talk about Jean Charest's announcement this week, because this is probably the most substantive announcement. He has a full childcare policy laid out for what he would do. This is interesting to me, both because I have children that need childcare, 
but also because there has to be like we saw the BC Liberals do in the last election, some kind of response to the emerging consensus around $10 a day childcare. What is the center response to that? What is the alternative? Because you can't just say we're going to scrap it because the government doesn't need to build that because it's very popular. So how do you do it from a more conservative point of view? And Jean Charest's approach will be to maintain the deals as signed, introduce a child care, a choice in child care tax credit. He's would base this on programs in Ontario and Quebec and replace the existing uh, child care expense deduction, which I'll note is like $8,000 you get to write off your taxes. It, that was a huge effect on my taxes. I got a couple thousand back because of that. What his new deduction would let you do is rebates up to 75% of childcare expenses for lower income families whose childs do not use subsidized daycare. So the point here is that there are a number of childcare providers, including license not required here in BC. So if you're paying a neighbor to look after your kid, they can in BC look after two kids, but they don't get a government subsidy. Some private providers in some provinces won't get subsidies. And the conservative question is, or conservative pushback that I'm starting to see is, if we're going to be funding, why don't we fund those? Why are we only funding the public nonprofit ones? And this way, yeah, that's- he would provide some benefit to those parents. Yeah, there's a, I think the general position with it, or consensus within the conservative party has been that whatever the f- child care structure turns out to be, it shouldn't lean one way or the other with respect to uh government subsidized uh childcare and more individualized family targeted or arrangements that work better for individual families whether that's parents neighbors that sort of thing so th- this is in pretty much in line with kind of the existing consensus within conservative circles and perhaps that is actually where the, the consensus within the conservative circles have been more so than the exact model to get there, which there's, I don't think there's been a agreement on. What I also like about what Sheree would do with this tax credit is he would make the rebate payments monthly, so you don't have to wait for the annual return. That will make a huge difference for a lot of people. And, they, and then the daycare credit would not be available to people using federally funded daycare programs. Going beyond that, he would main. I think this was something O'Toole actually brought in, move the eligibility for Canada Child Benefit to the second trimester of pregnancy. Essentially, say you get your child your Canada Child Benefit a few months before the baby is born or expected to be born. This, yeah, I think, is a really good um, policy. It was in the 2021 Conservative Party platform. I think it was the seventh month. It was, I think, two months before the due date rather than a full trimester, but... Beginning of the second trimester is like six months. Oh, beginning of the second trimester. This is a lot. Oh, yeah. So, that's even... (laughs) Two months I thought was fine. (laughs) This is a lot of money. So, this takes the pledge that was in the uh, last conservative platform and significantly expands on it by basically adding a whole other trimester to the eligibility period. The Canada Child Benefit is a pretty widely positively viewed program. Like it's a basic income for parents and it has 
lifted a lot of families out of poverty. So, like he says, costs do begin before kids are born. They're significantly more after they're born, but you have to start buying things before they get there. So, this would definitely help. Then he would also have some tweaks on parental leaves, including extending for up to two years. Right now, the max is 18 months, eliminating tax on EI benefits and eliminating the clawback. So, parents could start to work part-time without as significant of a penalty. All pretty reasonable things that I think you could see widespread support for. Yeah, the I don't think you'll hear too much criticism of this. The decision to keep the Trudeau deals with provinces may be a bit of a tension point. Uh, Pierre Polyev has not said one way or the other, and I, I think he's trying to keep his options open there. Uh, Patrick Brown also came out this week and said he wouldn't roll back any of the signed deals. It's something that, like, if you said you you would tear up these deals, like, you might get some support in some parts of the Conservative Party, but, like, by, if the Liberal NDP deal holds for as long as it plans to, a lot of these deals are going to start paying real dividends to parents very soon and that will make yeah, you're them very yourself popular. Up for some, you're setting yourself up for some pretty big problems if you don't have a, a rock solid alternative to yeah. to have in place for the next election. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, moderate, probably broadly popular policies from Sheree. I don't know if it'll win him many votes, but it at least shows that he's thinking about what the conservatives need to look like probably to win broadly more than just to win over conservative base. And this probably affects people a lot more than making Canada the Bitcoin champion of the world or the blockchain hub, even if it doesn't get as big of a headline. Moving on to quick takes, something we mentioned briefly last episode, but we might as well dive into a little bit more, is the Liberal government has tabled legislation to force the online giants to contribute to news. Uh, So this would be modeled on Australia's legislation, which basically requires uh, Google, Facebook, and internet services to compensate news organizations when they link to one of their stories. This was brought in a year or two ago in Australia, caused some fairly significant consternation at the time with Google threatening to pull out of the country. They eventually walked that back, but nevertheless, it still seems a little uh, uncertain kind of what the long-term ramifications of that are going to be down under. In terms of what would happen under this legislation, CRTC would decide or get to the side based on some legislative criteria, which organizations qualify for this. And at a minimum, they need to employ two or more journalists and primarily operate in Canada, producing content geared towards Canadians. Yeah, it's a controversial model, and it's a weird one, right? It's this idea that you're forcing, like the liberals are trying to pitch it as like a market Base solution because they're forcing or because tech companies will make deals with media companies, but it's not fully free market because it's 
force deals. And if the CRTC doesn't think that they are fair deals, they can amend them or force arbitration. Like it's a mess. I and also like one of the kind of fundamentals of the internet structures that linking is free. Like you don't have to pay to to link to anything. Well, it's it's more than and that, right? These new breaks that a bit. Yeah, and media like, companies I, gain a lot by being on Facebook and Twitter by having their content shared. They would not be getting the traffic they get without social media. Yeah. Now some of they're they're having issues with I think particularly Facebook when you launch in their in app browser to on these Facebook ads replace the ads that come in for the various media websites, which means lost revenue. And I think you'll make a copyright argument on the stuff that gets scraped and put into the the previews or extracted texts and whatnot. So it's not like there's nothing there, but yeah, nevertheless, this is a pretty significant inversion of kind of just the basic rules of the internet in a way that I'm not necessarily sure anyone's really thought through. It also makes me worried about the kind of coverage we'll get of big tech going forward. If our major media organizations have made private deals with Google and Facebook, will that infl- like I know there's separation to some extent between the publishing and funding side and the reporters and we have a lot of good reporters in Canada who will still do the scoops they can but it does compromise the business model a bit to be forcing those deals in the same way that taking government money might affect your ability to cover the government objectively so all of those are explored a lot like I think I've said a few, many times Candleland digs into this a lot and questions it for our own part the I, the requirement that you have to get the QCGAO status, the Qualified Canadian Journalism Organization status, to go this route means you need to have two journalists full-time employed by your outlet. Disqualifies startups and small group efforts like ours that don't have that. And there's a lot of just like vague questions that are outstanding about who will qualify for this what tech companies will be caught by it? What media companies are eligible for it? And then, like most things the federal liberals have tried to do, when questioned with very specific and targeted good questions about it, they seem to flub a little bit. Some of the ministers, especially Pablo Rodriguez, is not good at answering questions about his own legislation, it seems. Which doesn't well, instill confidence. And yet he is still an improvement on, was it Stephen Gabot, who was the, the last minister in that portfolio, and uh, flubbed the question so bad they had to pull uh, a couple bills. I don't have a better answer. I'm- yeah, that's the problem, though. Is like there's No one's come up with a good model that doesn't leave a bunch of unanswered questions or uncomfortable situations to, to left to linger and yeah it's the internet's fundamentally changed the economics of news and no one's quite sure how to fix it in other things that need to be fixed our climate is still burning a story we missed a couple of weeks ago that was highlighted again in bc today this past week which is how i caught it thanks shannon the sierra club is suing 
the former executive director of the Sierra Club and his ministry, George Heyman. Sierra Club of BC is being represented by environmental law group EcoJustice, and they are alleging the provincial government has not provided adequate plans to achieve its emission reductions targets past 2030. Effectively, they're saying, you passed a Climate Change Accountability Act. Where's the accountability? They are demanding a court throw out the most recent Clean BC report as inadequate and failing to meet the specifications required by the law, which is a novel strategy, I think. Yeah, it is. We talked about it at the time how Clean BC had some holes in it and didn't quite get uh, to where it goes. I think it's unlikely, though, that uh, a lawsuit's going to be able to fundamentally change the government's track on this too much, but it'll be interesting to watch where it goes. And hey, at least the Sierra Club is suing over something sensible here, unlike some of the ones their California branches will sue over. I think they sued over a bike lane in San Francisco or something. I'm trying to stop it because it didn't have enough like environmental studies done in, in advance of it or something. So at least our one is a little more level-headed on this stuff. My favorite bit, though, comes from uh, BC Today reporting where the senior campaigner at Sierra Club, Jens Wheating, says it was a difficult decision to launch the suit, saying they prefer, quote, to work collaboratively with government. Having worked in the advocacy nonprofit sector, I can see that it launching a test case is expensive and challenging. And I'm not going to say that they made the decision lightly or easily, but they probably definitely viewed that there were advantages and upsides for their nonprofit doing it. Maybe I'll leave it at that. But I did find that this was a very difficult decision. It might not have been. I'm just saying. I'm still really curious to see where it goes and if they're able to get standing, because I think they might get thrown out as not being, not having the public interest grounding, but that will have to be determined because I know the Supreme Court of Canada will soon be reviewing our public interest test, public interest litigant test, which I'm, which is totally off topic, but something I'm watching. Something I'm honestly not going to watch would be the FIFA 2026 World Cup games because I just don't care enough. I don't watch many sports. But I'm not a soccer person either. They might be here, Scott. Vancouver is officially back in the running for FIFA 2026. It was announced this past week. We're joining Edmonton and Toronto in in a Canada bid that would also be co-hosted with the US and Mexico. This would just be a North America games. Uh, okay, but Mexico is, what, like 3,000 kilometers from here? That's, and even further from Edmonton? It starts to get a little logistically challenging at some point. I don't pretend to be able to understand the economics of how they're designing this. Like, uh, what's next? The Eurasian or Eurasia games where it, uh, well, one match gets played in London and another match gets played in Tokyo. It just because just you are on a continent doesn't make it make sense as a single one to do. Okay, oh, to, so it's only 2,500 kilometers from uh, Edmonton to the nearest part of Mexico. Totally changes the uh, feasibility of it. 
<clears throat> but this could bring in a billion dollars for British Columbia through 2029, according to Melanie Mark, tourist minister for the province. It might cost 240 to 260 million dollars if we have to go through it. FIFA is going to be aiming to announce the list of successful bidders next month. I think the big thing that's really interesting here is that I, I think we talked about it at the time back in 2018. One of the first things the NDP did after getting electing, elected was killed BC part of a bid for the World Cup after they got the contracts, looked at it and went, no, there's a whole bunch of garbage in here about FIFA just being able to create exclusion zones for ads across the entire city of Vancouver. And that's not what we want. And they would change prices and things and try to do whatever they want. And it posed no value to the city or the province. And it seems like FIFA is a lot more desperate now. Yeah. So the government said they changed this in part as part of their post-COVID tourism recovery plan. Okay, that made some sense, but I, I still want to know, did they get a better deal out of FIFA for the all the terms that have to go into this, or, or is that still going to be the case? These contracts seem to be very secret, so we, you could try to FOI it, but don't know that we would get it. I guess we'll keep our eye in the next month to see if BC and Canada and the US and Mexico will be going forward with this bid, but they can bring some good economic gains for the city and a lot of attention, but there was a lot of pushback and challenge over how the Olympics went, even though overall that was probably fairly positive. Yeah, I think on net, the Olympics were definitely a success. I think we were, we were one of the few uh, Olympics that actually made its investment back on it so that that alone is something but yeah I don't know. we'll have to see like i said i'm not really a a football person but i don't know i do kind of like the idea of having big events come to the city so uh we'll, we'll see i can't say i'm i'm super thrilled but i i do like the idea of uh it so yeah i don't really have a more of a take beyond that but uh Go sports. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.